I'm Marcus Smith, and this is Constant Wonder. Imagine yourself traveling in a remote region of the world, very far from any urban center, from any of the convenient amenities, and of course, far from other humans. There are many such places. The middle of the Sahara, Antarctica, the steppes of Central Asia, and of course, there's the ocean. Many a seafarer has felt isolated and without a lifeline back to civilization. For most of us, this kind of isolation can produce all kinds of fears, both rational fears and irrational fears. Getting lost in the woods. That kind of an experience can spark the imagination. And what does the imagination do? It takes over and can contrive an endless array of ghouls, ghosts, monsters, demons. And just to illustrate how this happens, we have a story now for you of a place that often slips the mental map of civilized people living in civilized places. If this place was ever on the map to begin with, how many people do you know who can even tell you where Labrador is or what Labrador is like and what kinds of monsters lurk in its vast stretches of wilderness, a place where survival might seem utterly impossible for most of us? Joining us now is Adam Schultz, a professional adventurer who has mapped rivers, led expeditions for the Royal Canadian Geographical Society. He's participated in numerous archaeological digs, tracked endangered species. He's even done a nearly 4,000-kilometer solo journey across Canada's Arctic. Among his best-selling books are Alone Against the North, Beyond the Trees, and the curious and mysterious story we're going to be discussing today depicted in his book, The Whisper on the Night Wind, The True History of a Wilderness Legend. Adam Schultz, welcome to our program. Oh, thanks for having me on. My pleasure. Adam, where are you situated right now? I'm at my house in Canada in Ontario. So you're not out in the woods? No, but my house is surrounded by woods, so I don't know if that counts. <laughs> are you comfortable with woods, I guess, is the main question. Oh, it's my favorite place to be in the whole world. That's why I live where I do. So every day of the year, I can go out in the forest and explore. So I love being in the forest. I, where I grew up, it was heavily wooded, and I think that really shaped my personality. And I've been spending as much time in the woods as I pretty much can my whole life. You know, the Europeans, they have all sorts of fairy tales and such that have to do with woods as a terribly dangerous place. The, the obvious example of this, you know, Little Red Riding Hood, right? You, you, got, you got dangers in the forest. The, things are lurking there. That foreboding, you didn't grow up with that? Oh, well, I did, like everyone. I mean, I, I heard those fairy tales and legends as much as every other kid did. But I think in reality, that only, <laughs> that only uh, increased my fascination with the forest and added to the mystery and of, of the woods and made me want to go out and explore them even more. You have a very specific tale to tell. Well, is it fair to call it a Canadian equivalent of Sasquatch or Bigfoot? Only superficially. I think that it's uh, quite different than that. It's uh, Labrador, which is pretty far outside the range of what people would think of as Sasquatch or Bigfoot. And it's a unique case with its own um, history and flavor to it. So it's, it's different, but there are parallels. Where did you first hear of this Travers Pine Gorilla, as it's called? Well, I was used to doing expeditions to some of the most remote places in Canada because that's my day job for the Royal Canadian Geographical Society. But normally I did expeditions mapping rivers or looking for endangered species, or sometimes they would just send me on very long journeys like crossing Canada's Arctic alone. But this adventure was totally different. I was doing research uh, here at my home in my study, and I often do this kind of research where I'm reading through old fur traders' diaries or explorers' accounts from centuries ago. And I'd been reading the diary of a uh, fur trapper by the name of Merrick uh, from Labrador almost 100 years ago. And for the most part, his diary was pretty ordinary stuff, trapping beaver and chopping firewood and hunting caribou. But there was one entry in the diary that was unlike anything I'd come across. And it immediately made me sit up in my chair and it sent a chill down my spine. Uh, Merrick talked about strange tracks in the woods that he, no one could explain. No one had ever seen or even heard anything like it. Uh, children reported seeing a seven-foot-tall animal when it stood on its hind legs, but sometimes it dropped to all fours and across the top of its head it had a white mane. And maybe most alarmingly of all, at night, uh, sled dogs would go missing. 
with no explanation. So I found all this very intriguing and I decided to investigate further. So I, my investigation started in the archives, just looking through what uh, scant writ written records exist for early Labrador to see if I could find anything that would uh, shed further light on these you know, mysterious tracks and all the rest of it, because I thought it's a fascinating story, but it, at this point, it was made 100 years ago in a very remote place. So who's to say that the trapper Merrick didn't simply make all of this up? But to my astonishment, after doing a little bit of digging, I found multiple eyewitness accounts that described very similar encounters um, with strange, unknown animals that no one could identify in, in strange tracks. So I thought, well, something, something really did happen here. Something really did emerge from the forest a century ago in Labrador to terrify uh, these isolated uh, trappers and lumberjacks. And I sort of set myself the task of investigating and seeing if I could unravel the mystery or make any sense of it. Situate us now in Labrador and where this place was. We're talking about the, what, the 1930s or so? Well, it's scattered over more than 20 years. So the earliest account I could actually identify dated to 1909. And the last account made by a contemporary was from the early 1940s. But by that point, he was describing things that had happened more than a decade earlier. So we're looking at essentially the first decade of the 20th century up through the 1930s in Labrador, in central Labrador. Now, Labrador is a pretty vast place. It covers almost 300,000 square kilometers or around 200,000 square miles. Uh, and it's a land of uh, windswept mountains and vast primeval forest, old growth forest. And uh, most of these accounts, they were scattered over a considerable area, but most of them centered on one area in the heart of Labrador near the Mealy Mountains and in a little tiny settlement, which began as a fur trade post called Traverse Pine on the banks of the river of the same name, the Traverse Pine River. So that is where I really focus my attention. I wanted to go there and see uh, what I might find if I went to that spot where all these sightings had occurred 100 years ago or so. Well, I wanted to talk a little bit more about this Elliot Merrick and other witnesses or uh, supposed witnesses and, and, and the credibility of their accounts or what you've learned about them. But you went there. You actually went there. Are there gas stations along the way? I want to know. Yeah, I'm used to going to some of the most remote and isolated places in Canada, but I had not been to that area of Labrador previously. And as I mentioned, Labrador is truly vast, so you could spend a whole lifetime just exploring Labrador and you still wouldn't see it all. There would still be rivers and creeks and mountains you'd never laid eyes on. You'd need almost 10 lifetimes to cover it all. But yeah, it's possible to drive to Labrador. There's a very remote and isolated highway that leads there, and most of it is unserviced. So no gas stations, no towns or settlements of any kind, and almost all of it is entirely out of the reach of cell phones, so no cell reception either there. But uh, I recruited a friend of mine, someone who I thought would be a good fit, fit for this sort of expedition, and we drove to Labrador, um, which was quite a long road trip. It took us three days of almost nonstop driving uh, to get there. And uh, when we got to the end of the line, we left our car and we, we loaded up a canoe with our, our gear, food rations and survival equipment, camping equipment. And then we set off uh, by canoe to go search for the ruins of Traverse Pine. So is this the kind of trip where you have to hunt along the way to have enough food? Uh, no, we didn't bother with that on this uh, trip. I mean, we, we have done that sort of thing on other expeditions that I do, but for this one, we wanted to have all of our attention and all of our time devoted for searching for artifacts and clues and ruins. So we uh, loaded up a, a, a watertight plastic barrel with food rations in the form of freeze-dried meals and granola bars and energy bars and that sort of thing, some beef jerky. Uh, that's what we took with us. Now, we, we ate a lot, quite a lot of wild uh, berries because it was in September, so the wild berries were ripe at that time. But we, we focused most of our attention on trying to trying to unravel the mystery if we could, rather than trying to hunt and fish and live off the land. And, and all told, how many days did this take? It took us two weeks to do this. Travers Pine, in the early 1900s, existed as a human settlement? And, and for what reason? Yes, by Labrador standards, it was actually quite a thriving town. It had, at, at its height, four houses. So that is quite a <laughs> metropolis by the standards of northern Canada. 
it, it was founded back in the 1840s as a fur trade post by the Hudson's Bay Company, which is a very famous fur trade company in Canada. They operated a series of hundreds of fur trade posts all the way across northern Canada. Um, but this particular fur trade post was so lonely and so isolated that it was never profitable. So the company, uh, the Hudson's Bay Company, they just abandoned it in the 1870s or the 1880s. And a local French-Canadian family, uh, they actually took it over and continued to run it as an independent fur trade post. But it was never really that profitable. And not long after the accounts, uh, in the 1930s, it was abandoned altogether. And it just fell into ruin as a ghost town in the wilderness. You actually found it? Uh, yes, we did. I mean, I don't want to give away too many spoilers in the book, but that happens fairly early on, so I don't feel too bad in saying yes. Uh, we had some clues in the form of the archival records and an old map of Labrador, so we knew the approximate location, but we weren't 100% uh, where it was located. We knew it was somewhere on the Traverse Pine River, but the oldest sources weren't that detailed. They didn't say which side of the river or how far up it had been, so it took a little bit of searching in the woods, and the forest was like very thick, balsam fir and black spruce and alder bushes. Um, but eventually we found uh, the crumbling remains of Traverse Pine. There was not much left of it. It was pretty overgrown, but we, uh, we found it and we, we spent a night camping there before going deeper into the wilderness, up into the mountains uh, to continue our investigation and our expedition. Well, continuing that expedition was looking specifically for, for what? I mean, if, if this creature had truly existed, it, well, actually, I think there were two of them. Wasn't there believed at one point to be a male and a female? Yes, that's correct. So the accounts didn't uh, agree on every point. There was some discrepancy, but there was considerable overlap. And several of the, uh, the chroniclers, they had said that there were more than one creature. And as you said, uh, a few of them thought there was a male and a female. And they sort of figured this out by the tracks and also by the noises they heard in the night and some of the, the sightings. So more than one, according to most of the accounts. And my friend and I, we were both skeptics. We said, we don't really believe that there is such a thing as this creature, nor do we believe in Sasquatch and all these other legends, but we're open-minded. And <laughs> to investigate this thoroughly, we have to consider every possibility. And we thought, well, if something had actually existed a hundred years ago, whatever it was, it probably wouldn't be in this spot today. Um, because it's not as remote as it was 100 years ago, it probably went deeper into the mountains. So that's what we decided to do. We would also go deeper into the mountains and see what we could find up there. Now, in all fairness, if you're looking for some kind of living species of animal, uh, that time period, 1900 to 1930, there were still pretty big animals being you know, cataloged, being described by scientists in that day that hadn't been successfully found or described until then. And I mean, even today we're finding small species that are new, but, but fairly large animals were being identified by scientists back then. Yes, absolutely. At that time, there was nothing outside the bounds of possibility when it came to animals. And some of the accounts, there was one written by an explorer named Robinson, who'd come to Labrador to look for gold and other precious minerals. He, he just thought that this is some unknown animal species that's not in any science or zoology book. He thought, you know, it wasn't that long ago in the grand scheme of things when we really did have large and fantastic beasts that roam northern Canada, like woolly mammoths and mastodons and saber-toothed tigers. And as he put it, there was no absolute reason why they should have all died off. And if some should still exist, where better than Labrador uh, with its trackless wilderness of many hundreds of thousands of square miles? And I point out in the book uh, many different animals uh, that were not known to science until well into the 20th century. You know, very large animals from all over the world uh, that were still not known beyond their immediate area, you know, other than maybe to some of the locals. Uh, no one else had ever had ever seen of them, seen them, or, or were aware of them. So this was something that seemed entirely plausible, even to scientific minds in Labrador in the 1910s, 1920s, that there were still some large unknown animals lurking around in the wilderness. There. Did you turn to any stories from indigenous peoples? Yes, that's uh, actually a big part of my book is the research into some of the indigenous elders' legends of things that lurked in the mountains there, and they certainly have their own 
fascinating traditions of different strange creatures and supernatural beings that lived in the mountains of Labrador. For some reason or another, for a, pl for a place as sparsely inhabited as Labrador, it seems to breed uh, these kind of legends across cultures among the French Canadian settlers and the Scottish and English settlers and the various indigenous um, cultures that inhabited Labrador have many of their own legends of these kind of things. So that it forms part of the book. And I consider all the possibilities, you know, if that would shed any light on it. But ultimately, this seemed quite different uh, than any of the indigenous legends uh, from the area. So I ended up sort of leaning in the other direction away from those. Would you give your partner in this expedition the name? Zach. Uh, his name is Zach. Uh, Zach Junkin, to be exact. And um, he, he, I'd known him because we'd gone to high school together, but we were never really close friends. He was a year ahead of me. And normally I do my expeditions alone. That's what I'm known for. I've done expeditions solo for up to four months at a time. Uh, but this was already late in the year. It was into September, and I knew that to get to where we had to get to, we'd have to do some pretty pretty difficult and hazardous canoeing uh, in very large open water where it could be stormy, and that to get up into the mountains, we would have to paddle against the current on some pretty strong mountain rivers. So I really wanted a partner in the canoe with me, and I figured when tackling this kind of uh, mystery, two heads are better than one and two pairs of eyes would be useful. We, you know, we might find some clue or artifact that I might overlook by myself. Um, but I, the problem was it was already late in the year and I didn't have a lot of time. So I wondered, you know, who can I recruit on such short notice? And that's when Zach uh, came, came to mind because I, even though we weren't close friends, I knew that he was an outdoorsy sort of person and that he was uh, certainly in very good shape. He was a professional athlete. He was actually a mixed martial arts fighter. Uh, and he did triathlon as well. So I thought if anyone is going to uh, be prepared and, and willing to set off on short notice to go search the ruins or for the ruins of some sort of ghost town where some sort of monster haunted it 100 years ago, it'll be this guy. So I sent him a message. And luckily for me, he, he was almost immediately on board with the project. We have Adam Schultz with us, and the, we've got to get to his conclusions, uh, what, what he may have ascertained, if anything. He's author of The Whisper on the Night Wind, The True History of a Wilderness Legend. You're listening to Constant Wonder. Thanks for listening to Constant Wonder. I'm Marcus Smith. A great pleasure to have Adam Schultz with us. We're talking about his book, The Whisper on the Night Wind, The True History of a Wilderness Legend. Adam as we're looking for this Travers Pine creature, sometimes referred to as a gorilla, some people have said, well, maybe it's some kind of mangy old grizzly if grizzlies ever come that far to the east and the north. Uh, as you're doing this, you got to be a little bit um, – I, I would be feeling odd. I would be feeling like, what am I looking for? It's not here. I'm out in the middle of nowhere. I'm looking for evidence of, of a kind. I don't even know what I should be looking for. Did you know what you should be looking for? No, we had different theories that we had discussed uh, before we even set off into the wilderness. And certainly things feel different when you're, you know, inside your house with a roof over your head and you have <laughs> lights on and you're reading these old accounts from a century ago. It's easy to sort of dissect them and say, well, maybe this was just a hoax. Uh, maybe someone got a little carried away and trying to prank a neighbor. But then when you're actually out in the wilderness, far from civilization, uh, in an ancient mountain range, in an ancient forest where the trees are centuries old and where uh, you're constantly glancing over your shoulder and the forest is so thick you can't see more than three or four feet in any direction, the accounts start to take on a different feel and you almost find yourself, in spite of your skepticism, thinking, well, you know, who knows, there could be something out here that has never never entered any science book. I mean, it's, it's almost possible. Um, so yes, they, things felt very differently when we were out there, but we discussed many different possibilities ranging from, could this have been a hoax? And we go through all the evidence and ultimately I think I show pretty convincingly in the book that no, this is no mere hoax, uh, nor was it mere delusion. Uh, something really did emerge from the forest to terrify that isolated settlement uh, almost a hundred years ago. And we discussed various possibilities and we weigh all the evidence and I sort of introduce different ones throughout the book. But I think in the end, we really did unravel the mystery and solve what it was, but I don't want to give that away um, because I don't want to spoil the ending of the book. 
So once again, Adam, what are your eyes scanning for? You say evidence. You found the footings or the the wreckage, the ruins of four houses where the Travers Pine community once stood. Uh, Beyond that, you can't be looking for missing sled dogs, you know? Yeah, so originally the artifacts we were looking for was just any clues to the whereabouts or the existence of Traverse Pine. Because before we set off into the wilderness, we had no idea what we might find. We had, For all we knew, there was no trace of it. It had been entirely swallowed up over the last hundred years by the forest. So we started off just looking for any sort of artifacts, like an old rusty axe head or perhaps the decaying remnants of a wooden pail. One of the buildings was still more or less standing and had kind of crumbled and collapsed. So that's what we began by looking for. But then later on on our expedition, uh, we were looking for signs of wildlife, you know, tracks, scat, hair, that sort of thing. Any sort of um, dens or caves, because one of the witnesses from 100 years ago had said that the tracks would lead to nests under trees, which I found quite strange and mysterious. And unfortunately, he did not elaborate on what he meant meant by nest under the trees. Um, and as I said, you know, I'd already spent a lot of time in the wilderness, and I'd seen many different uh, animals in all my travels. But I was thinking, well, is there is there something that could easily explain this? You know, is this is something a black bear could have made. Um, so we were looking for things like that, and we were also trying to stay open minded and looking for. For anything we might come across, even the unexpected, right? So we had to take into consideration everything we possibly could on our journey. So it's real detective work. Yes, absolutely. This was like the ultimate of cold cases, uh, one from almost 100 years ago. But that is essentially how we approached it as investigators with eyewitness reports that we could cross-examine to see where we thought it was accurate and truthful and maybe where someone had been exaggerating or they had it had gotten details wrong because it was secondhand or thirdhand. Um, but that, that is exactly how we looked at it, as a sort of cold case, a mystery to be solved. And what kind of character references still exist after 100 years? Were these individuals the kind of people where you think um, they're not going to have any ulterior motive? Well, we were always trying to be skeptical, so we didn't want to take anything at face value until we'd done our homework. I was sort of surprised in the beginning when I first started researching these accounts. I thought, well, we're looking for lumberjacks and fur traders and lumberjacks and fur traders a hundred years ago in the backwoods of Canada, they had many superstitions and they probably believed in all sorts of things. We, we wouldn't likely believe in today, whether Bigfoot or Sasquatch or this sort of thing. Uh, but to my surprise of the written records, Several were made by medical doctors, um, you know, educated men of science. And I thought, well, surely these individuals would express some degree of skepticism that this was just, these were just old campfire stories, um, you know, designed to entertain or to terrify. Uh, But no, the medical doctors were not skeptical at all. Uh, They thought, you know, living in Labrador as they did, it was entirely plausible that there were unknown creatures lurking somewhere out there. One of them in particular, Dr. Patton said, the existence of the strange Traverse Pine beast, as he called it, was simply too well-founded to doubt. And another one of the accounts had actually been written by a wildlife biologist, someone who was trained um, in the wildlife of Northern Canada. And he tried to come up with some sort of a rational explanation based on the existing animal kingdom. But even he had to concede at the end that it didn't really make sense and it didn't really explain the track. So even he was kind of baffled ultimately by this mystery. So the accounts were pretty strong. And when we went through them, it really didn't seem like anyone was trying to make a hoax. Maybe somebody had exaggerated or embellished certain details, but it was clear to me, I had no doubt um, that something really did emerge from the forest in Labrador 100 years ago to terrify these people. So in other words, these people who left the accounts, they were taking themselves very seriously. Yes. Yeah. There was no suggestion whatsoever that yeah. this was a, a hoax or the result of somebody <laughs> having a, one too many drinks or something around yeah. the campfire. They, yeah. they took it seriously. Yes. Did there come a point for you and Zach on this expedition where you're standing on maybe some mountain ridge, looking down perhaps on a waterfall and you've got the, the woods around you? Did there come a point where you've said you looked and you just kind of agreed and you said, OK, we're done. We've seen all that we're likely to see. 
Yes. Um, when we finally, so we sort of set our objective. We went up this river, you know, winding river deeper and deeper into the wilderness. And then when we could go up it no further because the rapids, the white water was simply too strong to continue by canoe. We left the canoe behind and we continued on foot through the forest. And the forest there is almost inconceivably wild. Uh, there's no trails. There's no pass of any kind. And sometimes it's difficult to see more than a few feet in any direction. So we bushwhacked our way through this forest that was so thick, you'd almost need a machete to get through it. And we were trying to get into the mountains themselves. And when we could see, when we had a clear view of this mountain range, the Mealy Mountains, there was one peak that loomed up higher than the others. So we made that our objective. We wanted to try to reach that mountain and then scale it, if we could, all the way up to the summit, um, which we eventually did. And when we reached the summit of that mountain, is when we felt we'd unraveled the mystery. Um, we sort of climbed the mountain seeking enlightenment, if you will, and we found it. And when we reached the summit, that's when we sort of put everything together. And I felt, yes, now we know what this is. And then from there, we had a, a pretty long return trip because we had to get back down the mountain and back through the forest to where we left our canoe and back down the river and all the way back to where we left our car. So that, that was the turning point. But again, I don't want to give away any spoilers uh, because <laughs> the, fun of the, the, the fun of the book is trying to see if you can unravel the mystery um, before you get to the end. So you, you have a hypothesis that you will stand by where you're, you're feeling this is very plausible and I have an answer and I can explain it with this idea. Yes, I think so. I, I feel 97% confident. No one wants to be 100% because there's still a 3% of doubt and mystery um, that I can't explain. But I think um, using all the evidence that was available to me in my book, I provide a pretty okay. convincing explanation for the tracks and the sightings. Yes. Okay. Can I at least please, please, please ask you this one question, which is, uh, would you say that the account that describes this creature as having some kind of a white ruff or a tuft of hair on the crown of the head, or the, maybe the nape of the neck, I don't know, uh, that white hair thing, are you on board with that? Yes, I think that was a very important detail because it was in multiple accounts and it didn't seem like something that somebody would just think to make up. But uh, yeah, that's an important clue for sure. Yeah. <laughs> so, okay, without spilling any beans here, you come back from this expedition and you're going to be reporting your findings to somebody. Uh, and, and, and maybe you shared this hypothesis with people explaining, well, I, I think it's X and I think it's not Y and I, I believe it couldn't possibly be Z. And you're talking to people about this and you, and you look them in the eye. Do they, um, do they just accept what you have to say, these people you're re reporting to? <laughs> yes, I think so. Uh, at least so far. I mean, the book has only been out for two weeks, so we haven't had that many uh, people review it yet. But I'm, I'm curious to see what uh, people will think. I hope they first and foremost enjoy the the book and the mystery and the adventure and have fun reading it. But uh, yeah, I'll I'll be <laughs> open to hearing uh, whether or not people find my my resolution of the mystery satisfying. So far, all of the reviews I've seen have said, yes, it is actually very convincing the way he lays it all out there in the end. So yeah, Adam, I don't want to give it away. I'm going to have to rely entirely on you because uh, I'm not going anytime soon to Traverse Pine out in Labrador. I, I just let you do all the footwork. Adam Schultz, a pleasure to hear this story from you. Thanks for being with us. Thanks, Marcus, and thanks for having me on the show. Adam Schultz is a professional adventurer. He has led expeditions for the Royal Canadian Geographical Society. His book is titled The Whisper on the Night Wind, The True History of a Wilderness Legend. You don't have to go to frozen Labrador to find strange tales of creatures that howl in the night. You can find plenty of weirdness in more typical backyards, including those in the American Midwest which for some reason produces more than its fair share of odd tales. That's next on Constant Wonder. Great to have you along for Constant Wonder. I'm Tenery Taylor in for Marcus Smith. For the next few minutes, I want to ask you to suspend your disbelief because we're going to talk about aliens and Bigfoot sightings. Most of us, I think I can safely say, are skeptics that E.T. has ever made contact with anyone here on Earth. 
But there are people out there who have their own tales of encountering monsters and aliens, and we have on the line one college English professor who decided that he was going to spend a year taking these people at their word, and he traveled the Midwest recording their stories. He's B.J. Hollers, and he's associate professor of English at the University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire and author of Midwestern Strange, Hunting Monter- Monsters, Martians, and the Weird in Flyover Country. We're curious to see what he found out. Welcome to Constant Wonder, BJ. Hey, thanks so much for having me. I I kind of think that this story maybe should start with the Indiana Monster Research Center. Would you tell (laughs) us what that was? The short-lived research center, yes. When I was uh, maybe 10 or so, I kind of moved into a closet in my parents' home, set up a phone line, and was hoping to get some calls about monster sightings throughout my hometown. It, it kind of closed up shop within a couple of days, so we didn't we didn't quite solve the mysteries of the universe we'd hoped for. So this uh, monsters have kind of always been on your radar. You know, it's true, and I think it's you've been on a lot of people's radar. I kind of like to to think of the opening salvo into this world for me of just reading goosebump books. You know, there were these R.L. Stein books. A lot of folks my age were reading back in the early two thousands and late nineteen nineties or so. And there just came a day when I read all those books and I wandered to the opposite side of the library and I noticed that there were nonfiction books about monsters, too. So that gave me pause. But but you're grown up now and, and you have a, a an academic job. And why did you decide to spend a year um, investigating monsters and other strange things? That's a great question. And, and the truth of it is the book's about a lot more than just the monsters and the Martians. At its core, it's really about people and it's about small towns and it's about the ways in which stories, as strange as they are, uh, can really help make a, a small town a, a point on the map. That was sort of one of the really interesting findings for me was, was simply that whenever small towns learn to embrace their strange, so to speak, they benefit. They benefit economically, they benefit culturally, and it's a lot more fun that way too. So I... I'm just trying to picture you in the field and I, you know, maybe you're going door to door and knocking on people's door and asking about this werewolf, whatever, giant turtle, whatever it is that you've heard about in this town. Um, and you're not from the town. So how does that usually go? That's a great question. And I think that the most important part about all of this when it comes to interviewing anyone, especially when you're coming from out of town, and I have, a, I have a long history of doing that in previous books as well, is to really make it clear that you're not there to throw people under the bus. You know, I wanted to give folks an opportunity to share what they saw, to share what they heard. And a lot of times people weren't necessarily saying, you know, I am certain it was a UFO. A lot of the times the people I talked to were very skeptical themselves. And a lot of the times they were hesitant to speak at all, you know. Um, because the, the fact of the matter is, as soon as people start talking about UFOs, the next question is, well, where's, where's your tinfoil cap, you know? But, but something <laughs> I found along the way was that 54% of Americans believe in extraterrestrial life in the universe. So more than half of the people in our own country believe that there's something else out there. And I guess that was something I wasn't expecting either. Yeah, but I wouldn't say more than half have claimed to have had, had you know, made contact. And, and I I just want to ask about the Midwest itself. So your title is Midwestern Strange, Hunting Monsters, Martians, and the Weird in Flyover Country. And I I just want to make sure that you're not trying to imply that, well, there's really not that much going on in this part of the country. So because of boredom or a lack of sophistication, um, you know, these people are kind of primed to, to believe myths and legends. Oh, yeah, absolutely not. I'm, I'm very much a Midwesterner myself. I'm a strong defender of the Midwest and, and the people here. Um, but at the same time, I think other parts of the nation perhaps haven't, haven't given the Midwest its due. We're pretty quick to kind of, as I say, fly over, you know. And so when we think about Bigfoot, we think of the West Coast. We think about Champy, the water monster. We have some East Coast stuff. I kind of worry that oftentimes in a lot of realms of the world, the Midwest is, is kind of reduced to corn and Indy 500 and sort of the tropes, but uh, but there's a lot more going on here, both in terms of monsters and, and far more than that, culture more generally. Well, I want to get pretty quickly into some of these stories from your book, but sure. before we do, I just kind of want to ask, well, how do you decide, you know, what to include and, and what to leave out? Were there any that you were kind of torn about? That's a great question. I mean, the fact of the matter is there's just no shortage of strange phenomena in the Midwest or beyond. And so I really was. I think my criteria was, A, I wanted to 
share the stories of things people hadn't already heard of. And so, in fact, Bigfoot isn't a big part of this book because we already know about Bigfoot. I was far more interested in, in some of the lesser-known creatures. And then the second part of the criteria is I wanted to be able to contribute something new to the conversation. So, as you might imagine, the written record for a lot of these phenomena is often pretty pretty thin. And so for me, I wanted to be able to go on location, to talk to locals, uh, to really find something new, a new theory, a new possibility to bring to the table. All right. So let's let's dive into the stories. I would like to start with the Beast of Bray Road. Can, what can you of tell course. us about this beast? Oh, how much time do you have? <laughs> well, <laughs> and, uh, it started <laughs> it started in 1989 and perhaps well before that in a place called Elkhorn, Wisconsin, uh, a woman who was coming home that night late from work uh, apparently saw some kind of bipedal wolf on the side of a, a road, Bray Road, near Elkhorn. And ever since then, there have been multiple sightings that have continued to emerge. I spent some time on Bray Road with the, the world expert, Linda Godfrey, with our cameras at the ready. And though there are many theories to what it might be, in fact, we did not see it on our on our day long mission. Well, I want you to uh, I want you to try to describe as far as you understand what she saw. Like, what did this beast look like? Well, according to her, you know, it it looked in every way like a wolf, you know, except the major difference was it was it was kneeling on the side of the highway on kind of its knees on two legs, paws up holding a piece of roadkill that it was apparently eating. And so it sounds so silly to talk about. It It just sounds like, well, it was a late night, one person. You can't trust these sorts of things. But the tricky part is it wasn't just one time. It went on for 20 years and some say are still are still happening. And so there are a lot of theories for what it might be and mutations to wolves and renewed wolf populations in Wisconsin and all these sorts of things. But that's one of those. There's really not an easy answer for. Well, did you meet um, Linda Godfrey? The person who I said did, that yes. she she saw, I mean, and what was your take on her? Well, Linda, it actually was the reporter who reported it. Uh, Lori Indrizi is the one who actually saw it, and she was unavailable for comment. I couldn't track her down. But the but the journalists from the from the town, they do a pretty good job of of telling the story. And I think Elkhorn's a little bit different in that this is one town that really didn't embrace the strain. You can go into this town. It's known as Christmas Card USA because it looks very much like a Norman Rockwell painting. There's not a lot of mention of beasts of Bray Road within the town itself. But many of the other uh, creatures and phenomena I looked at are, are related to a town that did the exact opposite. And again, as I mentioned earlier, really benefited in big ways. And I think Elkhorn potentially could too. This is kind of a side note. Now, there are a couple side notes before we leave um, the Beast of Bray Road, because you're sure. right, they were they were kind of skeptical, which maybe most of us think that's how we would react. But Linda Godfrey kind of got more involved in this story than she kind of bargained for at the beginning. And she be kind of calling to herself the keeper of the lore. <laughs> right. It's incredible. She, she stumbled into a story that she never thought would become her life's work. And yet today she makes a good portion of her living uh, writing about strange phenomena. You know, she was just a reporter for the local weekly paper. And then one day she came across this story and it, it's, in every way sidetracked her career. And I think she embraces it now herself and, and goes to all the conferences and speaks regularly. But, it, but what I really like about, about Linda is that she, like so many others, is skeptical herself. She has this great quote. Uh, she said something like, you know, I want to be as open-minded as possible without my brain falling out the back of my head. And I really like that. <laughs> I think we can all stand to be a bit open-minded while also letting skepticism be at the core of what we do. All right. And this is a little bit of a tangent, I admit, and I promise all of you listeners that we're going to get back <laughs> to stories about the uh, the strange and aliens and, and spaceships. But you went on a little visit to the Valley of the Kings Sanctuary and Retreat because you're thinking maybe this beast was escaped from this sanctuary. Will you just tell us a little <laughs> bit about this sanctuary? Because I had not quite ever heard of anything like this. You know, it was incredible, and it was just 20 miles down the road from Elkhorn, and if you're looking for wolves, uh, this this sanctuary is exactly the place to look. In fact, you have several wolves. You also have a Thai liger, which is a liger mixed with a tiger, which is supposed to be pretty much an impossible creature. I was told there were eight and nine in the entire world, and one was just hanging out in a cage in Sharon, Wisconsin. Uh, there were all kinds of incredible exotic animals there, um, needing a place to be after they were abandoned from of, you know, folks who shouldn't have been owning these animals to begin with. And so it was a really strange diversion to spend half the day kind of peering out at a rural road, seeing nothing. And then in the afternoon, seeing creatures that you would never expect to see probably anywhere on Earth 
let alone in small town Wisconsin. It was really a lovely way to spend the day. <laughs> we may we may have to talk talk to them here on this show because that sounds like a really <laughs> fascinating place. But let's get to another story. And in this case, um, we've got a plumber who says that a flying saucer landed in his backyard, and he actually, you know, he never wavered from his story. Um, and these aliens actually offered him some food. What can you tell us about this story? This is one of my favorite stories. The The plumber in question uh, is named Joe Simonton. And in April of 1961, uh, while living in Eagle River, Wisconsin, he uh, was washing the dishes at the sink and happened to look up and noticed the UFO had landed in his backyard. Uh, a few aliens apparently stepped out. He described them as looking like, quote, Italians, which I'm not sure what to make of that. Uh, but they stepped out and they handed him a container. Apparently, they needed some water to do some cooking. So he gave them the water. And in return, uh, these, these extraterrestrials... Now, wait a minute. Him. Did he say they ever yeah. asked for water? I mean, what language not, did they speak? That's great. That's a great question. He, he in, inferred it by way of the, the hand gestures and the actual handing over of this pitcher-like um, vessel. And so there were no words exchanged directly. Very good. Very good question. I love it. Uh, but in response to this, um, he was then given four what looked like pancakes, what became called space pancakes, and because, you know, when you're given space camp pancakes, you you got to eat one. So, so <laughs> Joe Simonton prepared to eat one of the space pancakes. And the story gets so much stranger. This isn't even the strange part of the story. The strange part is what happens next, which is the Air Force gets involved. They take the space can- pancakes. They send them to the Food and Drug Administration for testing. And spoiler alert, it was found. And this is maybe my, my favorite discovery of the whole book, that, that these pancakes were of, I quote, terrestrial origin. So these were very much <laughs> pancakes made right here on Earth from earthly materials. But that just made people say, well, wait a minute, maybe he just used locally sourced ingredients. So, you know, <laughs> there's something to be argued all over the place. Oh, and, and so, but but so we're talking about like government labs getting involved and, right. and outside people. So what's going on in the town? Like, are they defending Joe? Are they, you know, wishing all this would go away? Right. And this is a great, I love that you bring it back to the town because that's really the most important part of this book. I mean, the monsters are fun, the Martians are fun, but it's really about people and towns and how we respond to these sorts of things. And, and for the most part, the town was skeptical. Uh, there was one uh, man in town, a judge, in fact, who, who was interested in UFOs already, and he got um, various UFO organizations involved and really vouched for this guy in a big way. I had a chance to speak uh, with his son who confirmed, yeah, dad really believed in Joe Simonton. Um, some of the reports from the Project Blue Book folks, the folks uh, related to the Air Force who were doing major studies on on these kinds of phenomena, they were less certain of what Joe saw. It seems one of the quotes was that he was, quote, shack happy, by which they meant he'd spent a lot of time by himself in the cabin. It had been a long winter. People tend to sometimes see things. And so the problem with Joe's story, of course, is that there is no physical evidence left behind aside from pancakes, which, again, were could have very likely have been made. <laughs> locally sourced. Himself. It could have been locally sourced, correct. We're speaking with B.J. Hollers. He's the author of Midwestern Strange, Hunting Monsters, Martians, and the Weird in Flyover Country. I'm Tenery Taylor in for Marcus Smith. And now we're going to hear about a giant turtle named Oscar. Now, B.J., I, I like this story because... Unlike uh, Joe, the plumber who saw the pancake flipping aliens, uh, there were there was more than one person who who saw this uh, monster, and and a lot of people got involved in the search to track it down. Absolutely, and of all the stories in the book, this is the one that's really hits closest to home for me for a lot of reasons, but mostly because it happened just 15 miles up the road from where I was born in Fort Wayne, Indiana. So this story takes place in a small town known as Cherubusco, Indiana. Um, and yeah, in the, in, the, in the summer of 19, or excuse me, in March of 1949, um, there were some folks, one in particular named Gail Harris, who while he was roofing his barn, he and a reverend who were doing the work happened to see what looked like a giant turtle in, in the lake on his property. So they ran down, they got in the boat, um, and they're out there looking for this giant turtle. And one says, oh, I think I see it. It's on this side of the boat. And the other guy says, no, it's on this side of the boat. And, of course, they realized the turtle was so big that it was beneath the entire boat. This is a 400-pound turtle, they say, as large as a dining room table, they say. And as a result of this sighting and multiple others, thousands of people descended upon this tiny town on one day alone. The whole town, which had a population of 1,000, 
suddenly had 3,000 additional people anxious to see this turtle. So it had a major impact and it continues to. But did they ever get the turtle out of the water? Uh, it would make for a much better story if they did. Um, <laughs> they did not. We we have reporters from the Chicago Sun-Times. We've got people from Life magazine taking all the pictures. We've got people in diving suits that look like they're taken straight from central casting of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. And yet in all this work and all the, the whole summer's worth of all these guys getting together, creating these marvelous and incredibly imaginative traps, they could never hurl the thing or haul the thing up from the waterline. I wonder when the whole town is getting involved, is, is there kind of a, a point when people decide they have to kind of retrench and, well, whether it's real or not, we got to say it's real because otherwise we're all crazy? <laughs> I think you bring up a great, a great point. And I don't know if there was ever any kind of town meeting to decide that sort of thing, but I certainly think that at, as the years have gone on, even today when I ask people, is the turtle was the turtle real, to kind of get this twinkle in their eye, you know, as if to say, well, you know, we, we sure think he probably was. And there's a little waffling about it, but, but it's become a, a potential reality into more of a bit of the town legend at this point. And so I think what probably happened here, some of the locals have kind of confided to me later, was one described it like a fishing story. When you catch a fish, how big was it? You, you tell them how big was it when you tell the next person and the next person. And over time, the size of that fish grows tremendously. And so when it comes to Oscar, it's possible that what started out as a very large snapping turtle suddenly became a monstrous snapping turtle. <laughs> well, you actually talk about some towns that, that kind of go whole hog on these stories and <laughs> set up like festivals and, and they they want people to come and they celebrate these myths or sightings or whatever they are. Can you give us a couple examples of that? Absolutely. And what we were just talking about, uh, Oscar the Turtle is, a, is one of two great examples that come to mind. Uh, every year in, I think, June or July, Cherubusco has its famous Turtle Days celebration. So they dedicate a weekend to, you know, turtle soup and turtle burgers and all these sorts of foods that can be sold and turtle racing in the streets. And as a result of that, they're able to fund an incredible park, a skate park, a splash pad, all of this wonderful recreational activity the town has is in many ways the result of a turtle that may or may not have existed over 60 years ago. So I love that example. Um, the other example that comes to mind is Rhinelander, Wisconsin, just a few hours away from where I live in Wisconsin. Uh, there's a creature called the Hodag, which is far stranger than any turtle. It was completely fabricated by a guy named Gene Shepard, a, a lumber lumber cruiser, kind of knew where all the trees were and helped help folks figure out where to do their, their timber searches. And he made up this creature. It had horns. It looked kind of like a cross between a lizard and uh, I forget what other one. All kinds of creatures are involved here. It ate bulldogs on Sundays, we're told. Um, but it was the kind of thing that got people to stop in Rhinelander. When people were on the train, he would get off at Rhinelander just to take a look at this creature. So while we know today it certainly does not exist and never did exist in the real world, that hasn't stopped J.K. Rowling from writing about it in her Fantastic Beasts book. It hasn't stopped Scooby-Doo from having whole episodes related to the Hodag, and it hasn't stopped the town from having a Hodag a music festival and, and have a Hodag recreation at every Oneida County Fair Festival year after year. We've got a, we've got a picture we pulled up, and it's kind of like a, a smiling, friendly dinosaur with like a, the <laughs> stegosaurus spikes and fangs, but big grin. Um, so they've really embraced this, although you say it with nobody, you know, it, it, they it was invented. It was totally invented, and we know that. But um, some, this is all kind of fun and and makes me smile. But I just wonder, with some of these sightings, do people kind of put their reputations on the line and and risk and 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 maybe get a little hurt because they claimed or they you know claimed to see something or they they endorse somebody who claimed to see something like a monster or alien. Absolutely. You know, and we have had some fun today. We ch chatted about some of the more, you know, levity related moments of, of some of these stories. But there, there's a hard personal price to pay. And I've seen it again and again in the stories. Uh, Oscar the Turtle, again, Gail Harris. This is the farmer who, who staked his reputation in a, in a small town about seeing a giant turtle. And it, and it all but bankrupt him. He had to leave. It nearly cost him his life. He had a, a burst appendix and he had to go to the hospital um, and he could never quite shake the story. You what do you know? mean and, he had to leave? I, what do you mean he had to leave? Well, he, he left town eventually. Uh, I think he moved to Florida, certainly had some other folks who went that way. Um, for a while, he had, this is an interesting side story. The, the man 
um, John Gutowski, Gutowski, who wrote a whole PhD thesis on on this story, was at, at, his, at his college in Fort Wayne, Indiana, trying to figure out how do I reach Gene or how do I reach Gail Harris? And it turned out Gail Harris was literally in the hallway outside the office door as as the janitor. And so just by chance, we got the guy writing the PhD looking for Gail Harris and Gail Harris himself emptying his trash. And so he got a chance to talk. And from what I heard, and you know, until the very end, Gail swore that there was a turtle and that he saw it and he he kind of became a Captain Ahab in some ways and his kind of megalomaniacal nature to try to find this this turtle and, and never was able to do so. How does your family um, regard this project? Do your kids brag about, yeah, my dad chases aliens <laughs> or what? I guess, you know, I do other, I've done some other radio shows recently with a, kind of a different audience. And so it was a call-in show, and, and I kept getting calls from folks who were saying, well, what do you do when people say you're crazy when you tell them you've seen these things? And I have to make it very, very clear that I have not said that I've seen any of these things, and I have not. Um, but that doesn't mean we can't listen to people who say they have and to try to figure out the psychological reasons why people believe these things, thinking about confirmation bias, about neuroscience. There's a lot of reasons why people think they see things. And I think we're pretty quick to say, oh, you're trying to pull a prank. This must be a hoax. But everyone who I talked to on the record, most of them were very reticent to talk to me at all because they understood the risks involved. And so that was sort of one of my litmus tests. If someone was really excited to talk to me, I got a little nervous, but the folks who I really had to work with and get to know and build some trust with, those are the people I tended to trust the most. And so um, I'm very careful not to, to write them off in the book. Um, I, I really want to give them their due and to offer explanations and possibilities. But one of the possibilities, too, is that not everything in our world can be so easily explained. So do you have any kind of bigger lessons for people who are maybe not claiming to have ever seen anything, but um, just as they kind of approach the world? I mean, it seems like we have so much information. We ought to be able to get to the bottom of anything because we are we have so much information just at our fingertips. But what did this whole experience teach you about, you know, explaining the unexplainable? You know, that's a great question. And there are a couple of takeaways in the book, but one of the most important to me has to do with what we were just talking about, you know, and in, in any cabinet of curiosities, we humans are surely the strangest thing of all. Um, but at the same time, I think we ought to just embrace it because at the same time, our, our ability to wonder and live wide-eyed and curiously, I think, is one of our best strengths as well. So being skeptical, but being open to, to interpretations that seem a bit beyond what we would expect, because we have to remember there was a time before we had classifications of animals and creatures when, when an elephant and a giraffe seemed pretty darn strange, too, you know. And so being open to a world that there's more than we can see in here, I think, is, is, is awesome, ultimately worthwhile for humanity and all of us in it. B.J. Hollers is the author of Midwestern Strange, Hunting Monsters, Martians, and the Weird in Flyover Country.